Upfront with Lester Kivit in for Refilwe Muloto. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, you there with us this morning? Good morning. I certainly am. <laughs> Are you a Peppa Pig parent, a Peppa Pig dad? I have to say, it's not at the top of my viewing list. My kids used to love it, though, and uh, and they really like the voices because Peppa Pig is actually quite posh and and is very well-spoken indeed, which is quite funny given that pigs are sometimes viewed as quite, you know, dirty, kind of go-anywhere type characters. And then you've got these extremely erudite, very posh pigs. <laughs> it's quite a contrast, isn't it? But no, I'm quite glad we're beyond that era now. <laughs> very much true. What are you kicking us off with today? Well, for me, I think one of the most poignant things of the week, because it, it kind of says pushing the boundaries, it kind of says taking us into new frontiers, was the announcement this week that Victor Vescovo, the American explorer, made it deeper than anyone's ever been before. And I don't mean psychologically deep. I mean as in to the deepest point on the Earth's surface. He got to the bottom of the Challenger Deep in the Pacific. And the depth he got to was so deep at 11 kilometres that actually you could have stood Mount Everest next to him and Mount Everest would still have been a kilometre underwater. It's just awe-inspiring. But the really poignant thing about his mission, which took him four hours to get that deep down, and the pressure down there was about a thousand times the pressure that one encounters at the surface, was that alongside three new species that had previously not been described before living down there, so the ocean floor is teeming with life, there was also a hunk of plastic. And they knew it was plastic, and they knew it was definitely of human origin, because it had writing on it. And and it really focuses your mind to think that the detritus that we're spitting out all over the planet's surface is making it into places that we haven't even been to yet. And uh, we, we pay a lot of attention in, in sort of these bulk plastics, the straws, the plastic bags. I think what's also is a concern is sort of this micro or nanoplastics, you know, that sort of comes from the fibres of our clothes, the microfibres of all our industry products. And that then also finds itself into the food that we eat via the fish. And that is also having an effect, not just the plastic that we can see, you know, on the ocean surface. But the plastic that we can see turns into that plastic you mentioned that we can't. And this is the other concern because plastic doesn't naturally rot away because nature hasn't had long enough to evolve a way to attack the chemistry that's in plastic. That's why it's so resilient as a material. But when you put lots of plastic in one place, like in the ocean where you've got plastic bumping up against other bits of plastic, or you expose plastic to ultraviolet radiation, so plastic just left on the land surface exposed to the sunlight... This does break apart the particles and it reduces macroplastics into these micro and even smaller nanoplastics. They can then wash into the sea where, because they're made of plastic and therefore they're oil in origin, they like to bind to other oily chemicals. And this means they end up as almost like a container for other molecules that are oily and can include other oily products that are bad for you. And so these tiny plastic particles in the ocean can go around collecting up a toxic cargo of chemicals that can be harmful to health. They then get filtered out by filter-feeding organisms, and they get into the bodies of those filter feeders, which themselves then become food for bigger animals, and those bigger animals can ultimately become food for us. And so in this way, you've got this way of concentrating through the food chain both the plastic itself but whatever the toxic cargo is, it could be hanging on to. We are speaking to Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, Brian in Somerset West. Morning, Brian, what's your question? Morning, Lester. Morning, Chris. Um, Chris, we were talking about the uh, difficulty with electric cars uh, holding charges, the batteries. 
And last year, you mentioned that something they were looking at is taking water and somehow charging the water, using the charge of the water, then throwing that away and filling up with new charged water. Has there been any sort of progress on that system? Hello, Brian. You have a very good memory. And in fact, it wasn't water, but it was a particular compound of tungsten at a very high oxidation state. And the inventor of that concept was Professor Lee Cronin from the University of Glasgow. And about a month ago, I was in Edinburgh for the Edinburgh Science Festival. And because Glasgow is down the road from Edinburgh, Lee Cronin, who I've been talking to for years, came and took part in an an episode of The Naked Scientist. And we discussed this. And the, the concept he invented and that they're pushing now is that rather than have very heavy batteries, which actually end up weighing most of the mass of a car, you have a fuel tank containing a charged electrolyte based on a material like his clever tungsten in a high oxidation state you use the energy from that liquid and then when you need a recharge rather than changing a very heavy battery all you do is you open a tap on the bottom of the fuel tank drain out the now depleted liquid and recycle it and close the tap and fill the tank back up with a pre-charged new fresh electrolyte And the other great attraction of that approach is that because most of the infrastructure around fueling cars consists of forecourts with infrastructure to push liquids into cars, then actually this really strongly aligns with what we already have on tap, as it were, to power cars. So it could be relatively easily deployed compared with trying to put cables and things in instead. Now, this sort of technology takes a really long time to develop, to develop it to a point where it's industrially scalable. So you're not going to see this in a car tomorrow, but it shows that scientists are making important steps towards solving one of the biggest problems we now face. Because what is holding back technology, and especially transport technology, is power. Because in the same way that the lithium-ion battery was a step change for giving us mobile devices, because we went from devices that were the size of a, of a house brick down to things that would slip easily into your pocket thanks to better batteries, we're not there yet for the kinds of batteries and the kinds of power demands that you need to power a vehicle. But it's getting there. All sounds great promising, I think. They do well with it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Brian. Thanks so much, Brian, the in Somerset West. Chris, Lucy is asking, why are our beds cold when we get in it at night? Surely they should be room temperature. Well, of course, remember that you slip out of your clothes, which have been in contact, Lucy, with your skin, and so you've warmed your clothes. But the, the room temperature is significantly lower than the temperature of you. Your body temperature is about 37 degrees C. So when you first slip into the bed... The bed is at room temperature, but it feels cold because room temperature is colder than you are and the close intimate contact between the bedding and your skin means that initially the bedding, because it's colder than you are, takes some energy away from your skin surface to warm up the bedding. But the key thing about good quality bedding is that it's a poor conductor of heat. So it doesn't feel cold for very long because as soon as it gets a little bit of heat into it, the heat can't go anywhere, so it stays close to you and pretty soon the bedding is giving as much energy back to you as you're giving to it. There's a dynamic equilibrium, so it stops feeling cold. Surfaces that are very good conductors of heat, on the other hand, they feel cold and they stay feeling cold. So if you have a stone floor or you have a metal floor, for example, um, in some instances you might walk into an area and there's a metal surface, it feels very cold compared to, say, a wooden surface. Wood is a poor conductor of heat, so it very quickly warms up and feels like a nice warm surface. Surfaces like stone that conduct the heat away quite quickly or metal tend to stay feeling cold for much longer. 
Before we go to Joe in Otrav, I have a similar question uh, for you, Chris. I am I like being snuggled in blankets, but I I temperature regulate by just keeping one foot out of the out of out of under the covers because sometimes I get too hot and I believe that if I just put one foot out, I temperature regulate. Why do we do that? Well, the human body tries to maintain a constant body temperature. We're so-called homeothermic, unlike other animals which are poikilothermic. They rely on the external environment to contribute to how warm they are. And in order to keep our temperature about the same, we have a number of strategies. One of them is our metabolism, and the more energy that we burn in our bodies, the warmer we get. And we have a basal metabolic rate, which is accounting for roughly half the calories that we burn off in a day before we've actually done anything. And that metabolism contributes heat, which, if the environment is already warm, you have to get rid of. We also have other strategies to save heat. So if we get too hot, I'm sorry, if we get into an environment that's too cold and we're losing more heat than we're making, we then up our game and increase how much heat we're producing to keep our body temperature stable. So one way we do that is we shiver. And when we shiver, you produce useless muscle movements. But because muscles are only about 20% efficient, 80% of the energy that you burn in moving a muscle is actually released into the bloodstream as heat. So shivering is a really useful way to generate additional heat. And then we've got other strategies like pulling blood closer to the body core and depriving the skin of a blood flow. And this reduces the rate of heat loss. Or we do the opposite. We push more blood towards our body surface to lose more heat more rapidly. And then we do other things which are more complex behaviours like we retreat into the shade or we go out into the sun. We take a coat off, we put a coat on. And so you're sticking your toes out of the end of your duvet is pretty much the same strategy it's your body's temperature has gone a little bit higher than you'd like you feel a bit uncomfortable so you you take a a, a measured movement to to sort of reachieve equilibrium and lose a bit of heat so that actually your body temperature stays more comfortable or at a level that's more comfortable for you joey and autry thanks very much for holding on hi hi morning hi chris um I just wanted to find out what your take is on the data regarding climate change and, um, you know, the CO2 emissions. And, you know, there's been a lot lately in the news on it. And I'm frequently having arguments with people that I don't know on Facebook (laughs) about whether climate change is real or not. And I get quite frustrated with the denialists. And I just wanted to know what your feeling was on the data and, you know, the, the, the projection of, you know, 10 years from now, things are going to be catastrophic if things don't change in a big way. Hello, Joe. The bottom line is that there are seven plus billion people on Earth and all of them have a carbon footprint. Each of us every year is chucking out tons and tons and tons of of carbon because of our activities the electricity we use in our homes driving our cars to and from work dropping the kids off at school doing the washing doing the ironing cooking dinner it all comes at an energy cost and that usually has attached to it a carbon cost and that's before we've even hopped on an airplane and gone on holiday and the measurements that scientists are taking every every sort of few days there, there are measurements made of how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and this number is climbing inexorably And in recent years, we went beyond 400 parts per million for the first time ever. We'd never seen carbon dioxide levels that high in the history of humankind. And 
what scientists do when they make these sorts of interpretations about climate and that kind of thing is that they look at the past because as a famous person once said, if you don't learn from the, learn your history and learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. So if we look in the historical record, how do we find out what the climate was doing? How do we find out what the atmosphere was doing? Well, you can do this in several ways. One way you can do this is you can look at ancient rocks because written into ancient rocks is a chemical fingerprint of what the weather was doing the climate was doing, what the temperature was doing, because there are different amounts of different isotopes or chemical forms of things like oxygen, which is in water, of course, which are preferentially incorporated into these cycles at different temperatures. And so you've got a rock record which goes back millions of years of past climate. We also have a more recent snapshot where if you drill down into the ice of Antarctica, which scientists have done collecting cores of ice, you know, a kilometre down in, or more into the ice, this records a timeline because we know how fast the ice is forming in Antarctica. And as the ice forms, the deeper you go into the ice, therefore, the further back you go in time. And trapped into that ice are tiny bubbles, which are effectively a time capsule of what the atmosphere was doing when that ice was laid down. So we can work out, based on how deep the ice is, what time back in history this corresponds to, and we can look at that sample of the atmosphere, and we can then work out what the rainfall was doing, and therefore what the temperature was doing, based on that sample, and we can make projections about what the, or, or the relationships between different gases and different chemicals in the atmosphere, and how that affects Earth's climate. And the predictions that emerge from these sorts of studies, which have been done a lot by some extremely bright people and also merged with other information and data we have on how we think the climate system works, strongly suggest that there is an association between how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere and the temperature of the planet. And this fits with the physics because we know that if you have a lot of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere... As alongside water. This is a so-called greenhouse gas. It absorbs energy that comes into the planet from the sun and stops it going back out into space. So it keeps more warmth closer to the planet's surface. Therefore, the average Earth temperature, surface temperature rises. So we have this both measured data showing what happens when carbon dioxide levels are higher or lower on Earth's temperature. And we also have the physics and the chemistry that we know is going on in the atmosphere today. And when you put all that together, the story that emerges is the more carbon dioxide we produce, the more we're forcing the planet to warm, and the more we force the planet to warm, the more we're going to change the climate. I want to go now to Rod in Musenberg. Thanks for holding on, Rod. Pleasure. Uh, good morning, Chris. Am I on now? Yes, you can ask your question. <laughs> uh, Chris, my question is about the efficiency of batteries. Um, in other words, if you need, let's say, a kilowatt hour to charge the battery... How much of that can you get back from the battery and the different batteries? Hi, Rod. The answer is it depends, as these things always do, on the efficiency of the battery. Batteries are lossy when you put the energy in in the first place and when you get the energy back out because the battery itself has electrical resistance. So when you pass a current through the battery as it's discharging or charging, then that current is encountering that resistance and therefore some energy is going to be wasted as heat. 
The batteries we have these days are pretty good, actually, but they still get hot. If you're running your computer on your lap, which actually we're all told now we shouldn't have our laptops on our laps, um, contrary to the name, because they can make, especially if you're a man, they can make your lap too warm, and this can be bad for your sex life in terms of um, stopping your sperm production. So don't do that. But if you feel the underside of your computer when it's working quite hard, where the battery is, the battery will get warm. And this is energy being wasted. Now, I don't know the precise number for the efficiency of the different classes of batteries, but all of them are going to encounter this problem but we are getting better at having better electrodes in those batteries which have lower internal resistance and so more of the juice that comes out of the battery turns into useful work and less is wasted Um, but it's certainly non-zero and it can be an appreciable amount in some battery designs Thanks so much Rodney We want to go to Pauline in Tukai How are you doing Pauline? Uh, Not too good I'm fine. Uh, I wanted to ask Chris, what makes you cough? What happens to your lungs? I'm trying to get rid of a bout of bronchitis and you cannot stop your cough. No, Pauline, you can't. It's there for a very good reason. And um, the whole coughing reflex is or originates from clusters of nerves. There's a thing called the non-adrenergic, non-cholinergic or NANC nervous system that is in your lung tissue. And that system is sensitive to irritation on the surfaces of the lung airways. And anything that irritates, blocks, causes the lungs to to be uh, collapsed, you know, the airways to collapse or to be inflamed, irritates these nerves, which send those signals back to your brain stem. And the brain stem is the part of the brain below the main top of the brain that connects the brain proper to your spinal cord. And in the brainstem are lots of nerve circuits that control the things that we don't subconsciously have, that we don't consciously have to think about. Things like blood pressure, heart rate, breathing rate, whether you get the hiccups, blinking, but also there's a cough centre there. And when enough of these signals come in from the respiratory tract and they reach a certain threshold, they tell the body something is wrong in the airway and the right thing to do is to cough. And the way that you cough is you close your vocal cords off, compress your chest by raising your diaphragm and squeezing your muscles around your ribcage, and then you release the pressure all at once, rather like pulling the cork out of a bottle or taking the cap off a a fizzy drink bottle really quickly by opening your vocal cords. And this rush of air, it's anticipated by the body's reflex, would dislodge whatever irritation is in there that shouldn't be, whether that's a foreign body, inflammation, mucus, viruses, bacteria, that kind of thing. And so it's there as a protective reflex to clear your airway, and that includes the airway right down to you know very deep reaches of your lungs. And if you want to impress your friends at parties, there is a, there's a nerve called the internal laryngeal nerve, which innovates or supplies the upper part of your respiratory tract as far as your vocal fold, your vocal cords are, and if you irritate that in your throat that will definitely trigger a cough. Thank you very much, Pauline. I hope you feel better throughout the rest of the day. I think we have time for one more call, listening to Chris uh, Smith, the Naked Scientist. We want to go to Tefo in Brackenfell. Morning, Tefo. Hi, good morning. Chris, I wanted to find out whether this is just an, 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 a physio- physiological anomaly with me. Why is it that every time when I eat something hot, as in chili hot, like a hot chili sauce, I immediately get hiccups? <laughs> Yeah, you're not the only one. Lots of people have this. And the reason probably is in the same way as we heard from Pauline about coughing, and this is activation of certain nerve fibres and classes of nerve fibres which are sensitive 
to chemical irritation, chili contains the chemical capsaicin. And capsaicin powerfully activates a certain class of very fine caliber nerve fibers called C fibers and A delta fibers. And on those fibers is a receptor, a chemical docking station for capsaicin. And when the capsaicin chemical docks, it causes a, a flourish or a flurry of sodium to rush into that nerve cell, activating it. Now, that all then flows back to the spinal cord and tells you, or in, or in the case of the head and neck, it's to, it to, to a trigeminal ganglion, a big cluster of nerve cells which is actually in, in your, inside your skull. And this tells you, oh, something is feeling hot and burning inside my head. But in some people, as well as that, you also experience a, an onset of hiccups. Now, this might be because as the chilli starts to go down your throat and into your esophagus, it also starts to activate other branches of that nervous system that's supplying that tissue. And when they pick up that chemical irritation, it, as it's being fed into the brain, in your brainstem, I have a feeling in some people it then triggers that hiccup reflex, probably by activating nerve centres which are very close to the same nerves that control and coordinate hiccuping. And that's why I think it happens. People also get funny sensations. Another example, if, if someone takes, say, heroin, or they're given morphine as a painkiller in hospital, some people say it makes the end of their nose itch. And you think, why would that happen? And it's probably a similar phenomenon. The chemical irritation or stimulation of certain classes of nerves by the molecules in the chemical you're exposed to trigger these, these strange sensations to be experienced. We also, the other day, we had a question when a person said they, they had some surgery and their sense of smell changed quite radically after their surgery. And I said I'd go and have a chat to some anaesthetics friends of mine. Uh, and so here I am doing due diligence. I'm back two weeks later having spoken to my anaesthetic friends. And they were very surprised by the suggestion that the sense of smell should improve so appreciably in people who have had operations and tubes up their noses and things. Because in their experience of their patients, most people say the opposite. So those people who got a sudden improvement in their sense of smell, uh, you were very lucky and, uh, you know, treasure the memory. <laughs>